From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 234 of the Diz Unplugged, Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing good. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well, thanks. I'm looking forward to Labor Day weekend. So I'm going to San Francisco to see um, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. Oh, are they doing it as uh, the two parts or just one part? It's just the one part. Um, They were doing the two parts pre-pandemic, but then when they brought it back, it's just the one part. So I, I imagine they're cutting a whole lot out of it. Yeah, I you know what though from I, I've only read the uh, the screenplay. I never actually uh, I, I never had the chance to go and see it. I mean, I did a couple times in New York, but I just never never took advantage of it. Um, I, I don't know. I felt like I felt personally like reading it that there was easily ways to condense it down into one play from the two, but. Uh, I, I'll, I'll be interested to hear your your thoughts and perspective on it because I actually now that it's it's only one and I think it still plays in both acts uh, over in in England but in the states now that it only plays is is one I guess for everywhere now that you're saying this I'd be interested to hear an opinion on it because I, I it seems a little bit more appealing to me I don't want to I don't want to either take up a full day like that or have Harry Potter two days in a row I don't yeah. want a Potter. <laughs> yeah, that is. And I, ha- I have the screenplay, but I haven't read it yet. And I'm going back and forth. Do I read it before I go see it? Or do I just go in, you know, cold and experience it? I'm going to vote no for you. Don't don't read it before. Go in cold. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, that's what I'll do then. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for the advice. I appreciate it. Hey, it could be terrible advice, but (laughs) at least then if you're not like super blown away by it, at least you can't walk out and say, well, I enjoyed it as a as a book better. But you can say it afterwards. Oh, I enjoyed it. And I thought the book was even better. So maybe I'll see it in England one day. I have I I have no idea. You never know. Maybe I do hope (laughs) to return there someday. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, in our previous episode, we began our conversation with the author of The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. And, um, and that was by Jake S. Friedman. And it was it's about the strike against the Walt Disney Studio in 1941. And um, Craig, you might remember that Jake mentioned that animation historian and teacher John Culhane encouraged him to write this book. And he was such a great supporter of Disney animation in particular, but and animation in general, that he was the inspiration for Snoops in The Rescuers and Flying John in the Rhapsody in Blue sequence of Fantasia 2000. Oh, wow. That's a fun fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, this week... Jake will go into more details about the events that led to the strike, why the strike lasted longer than anticipated, and how it affected the studio after it was resolved. So let's return to our conversation, and I am confident you will find this story intriguing. So what finally happened that caused the strike to take place, where they walked out? Uh, well, people, you know, incorrectly say that Walt fired Art Babbitt and that caused the strike. Those two things did happen, but um, to, to, it wasn't one thing that caused the strike. It was it was just months and months of of this effort to 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 have union representation at the Disney Studio. 
Um, and Walt didn't want it, and Babbitt did, and both of them came into this with huge attitude. Like, Babbitt, Babbitt was taking this as like a personal attack, and Walt was also taking it as a personal attack, which kind of made it fascinating to research because you have these two really impassioned people, and I can't say that either one of them is a villain or a or really a hero in this scenario. They're just really fighting for what they believe in. And they both see themselves as underdogs. Walt for a long time really was an underdog. And at the time of the strike and pre-strike with the war going on in Europe, he's really starting to feel that his studio might not survive the economic uh, toll that it's taking. So Walt is returning (laughs) to this feeling of, of having to fight for his studio to survive. Whereas Babbitt is feeling like he has to fight for workers' rights to survive at this studio. So they're both, they both feel like they have everything on the line here. Makes of kind of like a Shakespearean drama, really. But these months of leading up to it, Walt is mad that these boycott threats keep happening. Babbitt is mad that Babbitt and these pro-unionists are mad that Walt is refusing to meet with them. And then finally there's talk that they're going to, like in April, there was talk of a strike. And then Gunther Lessing says, no, we're going to meet with you. And they're like, okay, strike is called off in April. And then Gunther Lessing says, "Uh, actually, that was just a diversion tactic. I'm actually going to uh, hire a bunch of um, uh, cops and turn them into studio security. And so now if any of you get caught or like get like, if, if we have any reason to, 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 to take you in, you're going to jail. The number of, of pro-union and anti-union people at Disney was very close to split down the middle. There were a lot of people at Disney who were just fine with the way things were. A lot of inkers and painters and assistants and in-betweeners, not just the animators, but a lot of these like lower paid people were just fine with how things were. And a lot of them weren't. And because it was split down the middle like that, it was really hard to determine who had the majority. That was a big problem to determine who had the right. If the union had the majority, it would be an automatic win. But the union wanted to determine their majority one way Walt wanted to determine the majority a different way, and they just couldn't come to an agreement. That conversation and the re- their reasons that for that argument is I was so fortunate to find that conversation where Walt's talking about why he wants it this way and not that way. And that's in the book. And Walt talking about his dad and Gunther Lessing talking about the threat that was mentioned by Herb Sorrell of turning the studio into a dust bowl knowing it's going to egg Walt on, just knowing it. Like he just interrupts the thought to throw that in there. Such a ploy. And so finally by, oh, mid-May, about 20 animators and artists are fired. The studio says it's just a normal layoff, but like three quarters of them are union members of the independent union and the artists are saying, oh man, this, uh, this is not good. This is what we call discrimination and we're gonna go on strike unless you meet with us and talk about how you're going to rehire these people that you discriminatorily fired. So they just want to meet with Walt. Walt refuses to meet with them. Uh, they say, if you don't meet with us by this date, we're gonna go on strike. And so what happens is that Walt fires Babbitt and the, uh, the security folks escort Babbitt off of the premises and Babbitt yells back, I'll see you all on the picket line. And there are people who are cheering and there are people who are booing and it's just a big scene, just a big, a big scene. And that's just what Babbitt wants. And so the next day was the strike. Nothing happens in a vacuum. And that's, I think, what I wanted to really convey in this book, that everything 
comes from something else. There's like an antecedent for everything. Um, one event did not cause the strike. It was a buildup over several months. And I hope that that was conveyed. Did you get that feeling that there was a buildup? Oh, absolutely. I felt it was a buildup over several years. Yeah. Actually. And yeah, um, yeah and, it, and it all just came to a head. And it, and it, but then in the last few months, everything just happened. It was like dizzying in that the back and forth and conversations and threats and boycotts and, and all of that. It, it, it seemed like it was nonstop in the last few months before the strike. Yeah, and there's some crazy things that were happening, like like the in-studio union, the bogus union, uh, is is accused of being fake and uh, and an in-studio union, which means it's illegal. And so they say that they disband. And so the next day, a new studio union forms. It says we're completely independent and we have nothing to do with that old union, except all the names of the leadership are exactly the same. And the P.O. box address is exactly the same. right. They were using the same letterhead. <laughs> yeah. But and then, of course, the the the, um, the gangsters are still moving in and out of the picture as well as they're getting arrested and then released because they're paying people off that they're, they're still moving around in the background in and out of all this. Yeah, I wanted so. to show like a broader context of, of of what was happening because they do play such an important part in the strike and what caused the strike and in some of the craziest stuff during the strike. And Willie Bioff is such just he's just a great character. He's so I love to hate this guy. This like short <laughs> little guy with a scar on his face. He's like tough, broad shoulder, and he's out to just like conquer the industry by blackmailing all the studio heads and he's just so involved more than i ever thought he would have been in any other context and i it's just so hard to believe but the evidence is there that he and disney were involved even in a letter that disney wrote right before he left on the el grupo trip he writes about aligning with buy-off and trying to figure out trying to explain as he's also figuring out why he did it why he aligned with buy-off uh, and it's just so crazy. I wouldn't have believed it if it wasn't in the like actual evidence that I had found. And I tried really hard to stay uh, with evidence of that time. I did not want to rely on hearsay. Um, and I did not want to rely on recollections from people 30 or 40 or 50 years after the event any more than I needed to. Uh, because this topic, the strike itself, was and is such a sensitive thing for so many families and for the company and for people who love Disney. I just wanted to make sure that I was backing up everything I was saying. This was not going to be a trash talk book. I was not going to be sensationalist. I was going to use hard evidence like a journalist uncovering as much as I can and still tell a very interesting story and a narrative and bring these characters to life at the same time. No, you, I think you're very successful at that. So now the, the strike went on much longer than anticipated. Again, a lot of emotions on both sides were going on, especially those who did not go on strike and crossing the picket lines and going through sewer pipes, as yeah. you described, trying to get sneak into the studio and oh. wives were getting mad at each other. And oh, my gosh, all kinds of stuff. What prevented the strike from being resolved so quickly? What since everybody thought it was going to end quickly? Yeah, they really did. I, nine weeks, which is the duration of the Disney strike, is a long time for a strike. It's a long time to not get a paycheck. And they did not count on the strikers did not count on and like being in such hardship by the end. It was it was really, really rough. I mean, such a such a sacrifice they ended up having to make. Um, at first, you know, it's just kind of like a like one parade after another and like fun, cool Disney cartoon characters on the picket signs. That was within like the first couple of weeks when everyone thinks, oh, this is going to be resolved any day. As far as why it took so long, people underestimated how stubborn the studio could be. 
And there's that there's so many complicated reasons, but all the reasons are human reasons. And I think that sometimes human reasons are the hardest reasons to explain. Um, in the newspaper articles at the time, it's always Gunther Lessing who is the the speaker on behalf of the company. He's he's the mouthpiece for Walt. Even when Walt and the company hire this union negotiator, this act, um, Walter Spreckles is his name, this act is just like a smokescreen. And it's still Gunther Lessing who's the mouthpiece for the studio. It's still Gunther Lessing who is the labor negotiator. You know, we can put quotes around that too because his, his goal is not to make peace. His goal is to keep the studio exactly as is. So in their old age, Art Babbitt and Ward Kimball blamed Gunther Lessing for at least 50% of the reason why the studio didn't resolve the strike sooner. Um, he, was, he was constantly impeding any sort of progress and, you know, he had Walt's ear. I kind of think of him as Jafar. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good comparison. <laughs> so now it's commonly believed that Walt's trip to South America allowed emotions to cool and Roy to resolve the strike. Is this true? Well, you know, nothing is as simple as as a summation like that. Um, that was a that was on like in a nutshell yes kind of sort of but what it was was a um a federal uh facilitator who agreed to lead the arbitration of the strike to come in from washington dc um the strikers were all for this idea and lessing said no we don't want someone from Washington, D.C., from the U.S. government, to come in and settle the strike. They don't have all the information. And the government, the, the office in D.C. was like, we'll send someone to gather information. And, and Lessing's like, no, no, we got this. And meanwhile, the strikers are publicizing the fact that, this, that the studio, as represented by Lessing, is refusing government intervention to get this over with. Like, what does the studio have against the, goal, the good old U.S. of A, they're saying? Who's, who's the real American now? Are you accusing us of being communists, they're saying. Who's the real American now? And so Walt leaving to South America, you know, he was sort of, he, he because he and Lessing were, um, like part of this unit and Roy in his wisdom didn't put as much credence in Gunther Lessing as Walt did. Roy was able to act independently of Walt and pretty soon after, like almost immediately after Walt left, Walt was like, okay, let's get this arbitration specialist down here and we're going to sort this out once and for all. And that did it, you know, getting this facilitator from Washington down. He, he was the person who was also, he had a lot of experience. He had uh, settled strikes over at like the uh, automotive companies in Detroit. I mean, like this was like playing by the books as much as it could be. And, and that did it. And once the strike was settled, there kind of had to be a restructuring. A layoff was still required because the studio couldn't afford to keep everyone on. And there was a layoff list that was drawn and that was argued against because there were too many strikers on that layoff list. And then the, the studio said, well, the reason why they're strikers is because the strikers are not as good. And that's why they went on strike. So we want the people who are just not as good to be laid off. And they're like, no, we're going to challenge that. That's discrimination. And so they had to make a new layoff list in November. Babbitt was on the first layoff list. Babbitt was on the second layoff list. And Babbitt said, okay, time to sue you guys. And so that caused Babbitt to sue the Disney studio for his 
his his layoff. This was actually the third time he was fired from the Disney studio after counting. So it was that lawsuit, that lawsuit and that trial that was retained in all of its testimony and evidence in this archive in San Francisco that I was able to access uh, through, through a friend who, bless him, took the time to scan every page and send them to me. Um, and that was a real eye-opener about what the strike was like. So, yeah, when Walt came back, everything was different. There were people there he wanted there that weren't there, and people there he didn't want there that were there. And then he was like, oh, man, I don't have the kind of control that I, that I did. I like being able to hire who I wanted and fire who I wanted. Well, I guess I'll focus on other things. And he sort of did. He sort of withdrew at that point. And Walt never really had the same involvement with the feature films, let alone the shorts, and animation in general, as he had during that golden age. So the strike, combined with the war, really was the end of the golden age, ending with Bambi in 1942. Um, and it wasn't until this new medium of television came and then the parks that Walt was able to like really throw himself into these creative projects again. So when the strike was finally resolved, what did the strikers gain for all of their efforts? Ah, well, so yeah, the union won. Uh, arbitration was in the favor of the strikers. The union won representation, which basically means, you know, layman's terms is that you have um, someone who can uh, negotiate on behalf of the workers when you want change in your conditions, whether it's workers' conditions or whether it's time off or whether it's uh, the pay increase. You have collective bargaining power. So just having a union allows that. They got a pay bump. They got some of their uh, paid uh, payment back for, for the time of the strike. Not all, but some. Um, and and uh, and they were able to kind of like compete in their wages against um, the other studios out there, like like MGM and like these others. And and I think mostly they were able to to know that they were um, represented by a group that that had um, power against you know Walt. <laughs> just in case, because a lot of them were feeling um, job insecurity and, and didn't really understand what was going on in the studio's finances. Like Walt never made it public that they were hurting so bad from the war in Europe before the U.S. joined the war. And a lot of what they wanted, what the strikers wanted, was job security, in addition to higher wages for the lowest paid people. And this is only after, you know, a couple of years. At the beginning, all they wanted was just union representation. Like, that's all. But then as, as the years wore on, wanting um, some sort of uh, job security rather than Walt just like on a whim firing people, um, wanting um, salary that compared to the other studios. That kind of dignity was was really what they were fighting for. And they got that. Um, and there are those who say that if Walt had just leveled with everyone and said, listen, we're, we're hurting right now because of the war. The war has cut off about half of our total revenue. And we're going to have to be in this together again, let's kind of buckle down, then, oh, and maybe say, like, I'm kind of scared <laughs> and I'm kind of nervous. If he had said something, just leveled with them, then maybe the reaction would have been different. There's that famous meeting that he had on February 10th and 11th, 1941, that we all know, or at least know about, where he's basically trying to to have them sympathize with him and talk as he talks about his journey from the twenties until now. And it's the speech that 
um, really polarizes the artist and some feel like it's a sob story and some feel like Walt's being genuine, but Walt is never talking about how, how the war in Europe has cut off his finances and, and has made the studio kind of financially insecure. Um, that's never really communicated. He's hiding that. And something that I discovered in my research was that we know now famously that Pinocchio lost a million dollars and that Fantasia lost a million dollars, both basically because of the war in Europe, cutting off, you know, revenue. The reason why we know this, though, is because of the other lawsuit that Babbitt had to Disney, because Babbitt sued Disney twice at the same time, once for the unlawful termination, which I mentioned, and the other for unpaid bonuses, because all of that time Leading up to Snow White, there was this incentive, this like employee incentive program that would promise bonuses, huge bonuses for, for work well done. And then working the overtime to create Snow White. And then there was still talk about bonuses, but then suddenly the bonuses disappeared. No more promise of bonuses. And a lot of people felt slighted that these bonuses were gone. A lot of pe people felt slighted that they saw these bonuses turn into the Burbank studio. Like, where's the money you promised me for my pocket, for my mortgage, for my family? And you, you're buying new furniture, new postmodern furniture in this new studio in Burbank instead of giving me the money that you promised me? And, well, I'm just going to finish this thought, okay? I'm just, I promise I'm going to finish this thought. So, um, the, so, so Babbitt sued Disney for these unpaid bonuses lost that lawsuit and the evidence that the Disney company brought that won the judge over is uh, the financial records stating that they lost a million dollars on Pinocchio and a million dollars on Fantasia. And any studio that loses money does not owe bonuses to its artists. If not for that lawsuit, that, that information and those numbers would not have been known. Full stop. You yeah. got a question? No, well, no, I'm, and in your book, The Disney Revolt, you you give a description of the post Snow White celebration party, which is infamous. But yeah. in Walt's speech, everybody was waiting for the bonus announcement, yeah. and it never came. And you describe so well the whole change in atmosphere the minute Walt sat down. And no, and without any mention of the bonuses, yeah. and there you could see how everything was just turning, you know. Yeah. After that, but now, okay, so they gained some benefits. Were any benefits lost as a result of the strike? I know one thing, and you do mention this in your book, was um, one of the casualties of the strike was that Don Graham's in-house art school was discontinued during this time and Walt never brought it back. Were there right. any other benefits lost as a result of the strike? Yeah. You know, for that brief period of like a year and a half when they all moved into the Burbank studio, which was like early 1940 until the strike, you know, famously there was the auto shop on the lot, if you had trouble with your car, just drive it into the little garage there and they'll tune it up for you, no charge. You could call the, the, the like at your desk, at your animation desk, you could call um, like the local cafe on the lot and they'll deliver you a milkshake to your desk. Um, Walt really wanted his, his artists to, to feel like they were treated well. Um, and there was the athletic club called the penthouse club which we know about quite well i'm sure your listeners know all about the penthouse club and we, we've talked about it <laughs> and, and that caused some um discontent within the yeah. studio yeah because you needed to have um like a like a high paying salary in order to gain admission to the penthouse club um, it wasn't accessible to everyone. It was only accessible to a very, very small group of high-paid artists. 
And so that did not make people happy. And that did not make art happy. It did not make Art Babbitt happy that people were excluded from this. It didn't make Art Babbitt happy that there was that this idea of like classism was um, visible on the on the floor because and some of your listeners may know this too. If you were a full fledged artist, like a like a high ranking animator, you had wall to wall carpeting, and if you were like an assistant, you had a square of carpet, and if you were an, an in betweener or or low level artist, you had just linoleum, no carpet whatsoever. And maybe this was an idea conceived to inspire people as an incentive. I don't know. Maybe they were trying to figure out, there was no rule book about incentivizing, you know, studios or companies at the time. They're trying to see what worked, but this did not sit well for a lot of artists that, that some people in the studio get certain privileges. You're already getting a higher salary, but now, you know, you have the dignity of like wall to wall carpeting while all I have is linoleum. I mean, for Babbitt, it didn't sit well because he grew up in like this, the, the poor part of, uh, Sioux City and, you know, being part of the, like the poor neighborhood, he would see the rich people and he was constantly playing pranks on the rich houses at night because he just didn't feel like this wage gap was fair. And that kind of continued. He never lost that. What were Walt and Roy's attitudes toward the former strikers once they returned to work? Oh my goodness. Um, it really depended. It really depended if the strikers were um, like really, uh, really virulent during the strike, or if they were level-headed. And there were some some level-headed strikers like Ken Peterson or like Ex Atencio. And some of these folks able were able to have long careers at the Disney Studio, long, long careers, and, and a couple of them have, had become have become Disney legends, um, but very few strikers made it more than a couple years after the strike. Uh, I include an appendix in the book of all of the Disney strikers circa July, 1941. And I make note of which of these strikers lasted past, I think 1947. Mm-hmm. And you can see like very few of them did. Um, yeah, other other studios definitely benefited from the Disney strike <laughs> because a lot of the a lot that we've talked about on the show, like Bill Titler, Walt Kelly, Tyra Swong, Hank Ketchum, Teehee, George Baker, Cy Young, Bill Melendez, Milt Schaefer, all went off. Some came back, mm-hmm. but all went off and had careers of their own or or at other studios. Yeah, yes. It, it, it's kind of like Disney was holding like all of these really precious, like like he was holding precious liquid gold in a in a very tight cup. And then the strike just spilled this liquid gold all over. And as a result, all of these artists got scattered all over and became hugely influential in all these different ways. Like you mentioned Walt Kelly, you know, who created Pogo. Walt Kelly wasn't a striker. He left at the beginning of the strike because he he didn't want to have anything to do with either side because he had friends on both sides. He stayed friends with Ward Kimball, his buddy who stayed inside, but most of his friends were also strikers. So he just, he said, my sister's sick. I'm going to go visit my sister and just basically, you know, thereby remained neutral, but it really ended his, his career at Disney and Hank Ketchum before he did, Dennis the Menace was a Disney striker and ended up, you know, making out on his own. And P.D. Eastman, who did Go Dog Go, and a bunch of other extremely talented artists, again, listed in the appendix. Um, John Hubley, all these folks at UPA, um, Steve Bezustow, Zach Schwartz, I said Dave Helberman. The people who founded UPA and all those incredibly wonderful and charming short animated films, they were all strikers. And there wasn't a time when UPA ever hired a non-striker, as far as I know. Um, So it had a huge impact on the industry. uh, But it also created these feelings that never went away 
I mean, um, I, I encountered something very interesting, which was, uh, and, and I believe it or not, I have evidence for this. The HR director, who was at the time called the personnel director, uh, he became sort of like the witch hunter for unionists. His name was Hal Adelquist, and he's a character who is very significant in the book, uh, who I uh, could have mentioned earlier in this interview, but there's just so much to talk about. So Hal Adelquist, who is so anti-union, he at one point had been like part of Art Babbitt's wedding party because his wife and Babbitt's wife, Marge, Marge Belcher, who was the model for Snow White, as we know, were best friends. And so Hal and Al, uh, Hal and Art had vacationed together, um, and they had this warm relationship. But right before the strike, Hal Adelquist is kind of the person that people report to when they see someone going into a union meeting. And so after the strike, Hal Adelquist uh, ends up basically being the one to draw up the layoff list and includes Babbitt both times. And he also is the person who, uh, who uh, Roy's, one of Roy's deputies writes a letter about and says, uh, you got to rein this guy in because if you're trying to basically mend wounds, this guy is not doing it. And by the way, this, this deputy writes, whose name was Oliver Johnston, not, no relation to our friend animator, Ollie Johnston. He says, by the way, Gunther Lessing didn't do you no favors either. Just saying. That's very true. <laughs> well, now when I see the tribute to Gunther Lessing at Disney California Adventure, I have a whole new attitude <laughs> about well, it. <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah. As as well as well you might. Um, <laughs> the, the weird thing that I found was that people were saying that how that 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 uh, the strikers who went back to work were systematically laid off one by one whenever there was a time to lay off people. And I thought that's kind of paranoid to say that the Disney Company is like singling out ex strikers over the course of decades, like into the 1960s, they're, that they're singling out strikers when it's time to lay people off, and then. I I met with Don Lusk at age, I think he was 101 or 102, and he was sharp as a tack. And his wife, Margie, had worked right under Hal Adelquist in, in the personnel office. And, and it was her job to separate the uh, employee evaluation cards from strikers to non-strikers and file them in two different files. And I thought to myself, this is that's an interesting story. That can't possibly be true. I mean, how discriminatory can you be? Even if your wife told you this, maybe you're maybe you're misremembering. I thought to myself, maybe this is just an anecdote. Maybe it just makes the story more dramatic. Which is something I was very aware of. That like lots of these old timey animators would make a story more dramatic, or make Walt more dramatic to make the whole story pop more. Or make their fight more of of like of like a good versus evil thing, um, which is not what I wanted to do. I didn't want good versus evil. I just wanted truth. But in the Canemaker collection at, at NYU, John Canemaker had about fifteen employee evaluations, and I asked John where he got this. Recently, I asked him. He said that Dave Smith had just sent him. He sent him just like freely Xeroxes of employee evaluations. John asked information about certain artists and Dave Smith just like sent him these, these employee evaluations. And this has got to be the only place outside the studio where you can see them because these employee evaluations are not very nice. They're very, they're very attitude-y and, and very opinionated and kind of harsh. And above the photo of each employee in these employee evaluations, like we're talking like Bill Teitla and uh, P.D. Eastman and John Hubley and Preston Blair, it says the word striker or non-striker. 
And this was like a jaw dropping moment for me because this corroborated everything that I'd heard about this, that these people were separated so that they could more easily be identified and thereby, you know, laid off if need be. And eventually Don Lusk, he was laid off in, in the sixties before Walt passed away. Don Lusk ended up doing like moving out of the Disney studio. And he had said, he said, one by one, one by one, each one of us was laid off. <laughs> wow. So the effects of the strike lingered oh for decades afterwards. Yeah. Indubitably, indubitably. And the feelings were so strong and so vehement because they felt that these ex-strikers like Bill Melendez, he became so successful doing the Charlie Brown specials and mm-hmm. more. But he would talk about like just Walt's character and 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 say things about Walt that I just couldn't I just couldn't find evidence of. Um, and other strikers would say things about Walt's character that I that, that I couldn't find evidence of. And I was looking, and I even had these transcripts of these meetings of these strikers outside of the Disney studio speaking about Walt behind Walt's back just a, a few months before the strike. And they're calling him many things. They're calling him stubborn and they're calling him oblivious to like the lowest paid animators. And they're calling him stuck in his ways about this changing tide of social justice. And it it isn't until after the strike that these accusations of anti-Semitism start coming up. And I couldn't find any evidence of that before the labor unrest. But after, after the labor unrest, when the strikers were being called communists and anti-American, that's when they're hurling back these slurs and smears at Walt of being anti-Semitic. And it became sort of like a battle cry, sort of like the South will rise again, that whenever, like they continued for years as, you know, elders calling Walt an anti-Semite. And in it, it's just, it's just a battle cry persisting the the strikers and like you uniting them against this front they still haven't let down yet they haven't they haven't let their guard down and they haven't abandoned the fight and maybe they still felt hurt they still felt like they sacrificed something really precious in 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 the strike and that it didn't have to happen and they wanted to hurt Walt the way that they had been hurt and i really I, I looked, I just couldn't find evidence of any sort of anti-Semitism, just evidence smearing. Yeah. Yeah, people who worked with him have always said, no, he never exhibited any anti-Semitism, including the many Jewish people who worked for Walt. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, but this, and again, the Disney Revolt, the Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, this could be a miniseries. They probably wouldn't air it on Disney Plus, but <laughs> this could be a miniseries. This is fascinating. And, and the stories that Jake has shared, this is only, this is only the highlights, folks. This book goes into such details. It is so compelling a read that I know a lot of you always ask me what books so do you recommend and all that for Disney you know Disney history books should I read this is one where if you have like the Bob Thomas autobiography and you have some of the others that I've recommended over time this is a book that covers an area of Disney history that really hasn't been written in in any detail so this is one you want to add to your library and read because it's going to fill in a gap um, in in your Disney history library. Um, so, Jake, how can our listeners obtain a copy of the Disney Revolt, the Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age? Anywhere. it's You can <laughs> order it anywhere online. Uh, you can type it into your favorite search engine or look in your favorite online bookstore, preferably a bookstore that treats its workers well, and order it there. <laughs> Barnes and Noble is a good one, I think. Mm-hmm. Or, or go to your your if you have an independent bookstore like we have in um, my town, um, they can might be able to order the book for you. Absolutely, that's 
definitely something that they can do. And yes, please help your local bookstore. Uh, bring bring some love to your independent bookstores. That would that would make me very happy, and I think it would make the spirit of the strikers very happy too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, are you? And and I didn't ask you this before the show, so I'm just sort of throwing this question at you. Do you have another Disney project in mind that you can talk about? Or are you moving on to other things? Or are you taking a break after 10 years of working on this book? <laughs> well, you know, I didn't work on this book, you know, nine to five, five days a week for 10 years. You know, this was something that I kind of had to juggle as a, as a side passion project. And, and that was, you know, during a, a time when I was doing a whole bunch of other things, including teaching. Uh, and one other project that came along was uh, I just w- I was passionate about you know the Disney TV shows of the '80s and '90s because I'm of that age. Yeah, I was an '80s kid, early '90s kid, and when I pitched the idea to Disney Editions to do a book on the Disney Afternoon, they were like, "Let's wait." And I was like, "Okay." And then when Ducktales was announced, the new Ducktales reboot. They were like, okay, now's the time. I'm like, great. And so, and so I researched and wrote and edited this book about the Disney afternoon right before the pandemic. The pandemic kind of put a halt on everything. And I'm going to say it's not canceled. It's forthcoming. We're going to, uh, as far as I understand, tweak it so it includes everything that should be included. A lot of readers have been waiting for this book about the Disney afternoon so patiently. And I, I want this book in your hands even more than you do. It's going to be awesome. There's going to be so much great art. And my favorite part, of course, is the underdog story. Reason why I love the Disney strikes for the same reason. But uh, the Disney afternoon book will, will kind of like break down how this tiny little entity called Disney TV animation came out of nothing, just like five people sitting around who were suddenly tasked with creating a whole bunch of cartoon shows out of thin air. Um, Really, really (laughs) weaving the pixie dust in magic through hard work and creativity. So um, as best as I can, I'm going to make sure this book is going to be amazing and um, that's all. That's all I can promise about that book. When you, when I know when it's coming out, I'll let everyone know. Excellent. And, Good. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one where where Craig might have to help me a little with the interview because my <laughs> children were of the '80s as well. So i i would I would have a I would see what they were watching and all that, but. Um, I'm not. I'm not as up on it as Craig is. That was his era too. So <laughs> no, I, I just went to Amazon immediately and saw that you know at least they quote an October fourth date. But I know that always blows by and and things don't happen the way. But that will be a day one purchase for me. Okay. Well, definitely let us know. We'll have you back to talk about that. But in the meantime. Thank you, Jake, for coming on the show to talk about the Dis- the Disney strike of 1941 in your book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michael, and I really appreciate you letting me just sort of talk about something I'm so passionate about. So thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Now that you've heard the heard the story of the Disney strike now, what are, what are your thoughts about about what Jake shared with us? What struck you about it? You know, I I think I walked away from it. Of course, I haven't read the book yet. I I need to. I you know, you 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 gave me a little bit of notice before this interview was coming up, but I just, I did not have time to actually buy it and sit down and read it yet. But uh, I just hearing about the subject of the book to begin with had me extremely interested. And then to discover the darker side of everything that happened, I'm, I'm even more fascinated by it by now. And yeah, of course you kind of walk away with it having, uh, you know, a, a little bit more of a, 
I don't want to say negative or or harsher view on Walt, but uh, I I don't I I don't know in what I knew about the strike in the past if I really if I really understood his position enough, and it I honestly I, I sympathize with a lot of the strikers more than I thought I would. And uh, yeah, so I, I I really, I don't want to say though that I like all of a sudden have a bad opinion on Walt with it because that's, that's definitely not the case, but I, I think it's, it's definitely, it, it makes the history a lot more vibrant and knowing else what was going on around the studio at the time and how they, how they recovered from it. And, you know, even, even maybe some of the stresses and frustrations that went into the work before the strike, it all just, it, it, it adds to it. So I'm, I, I'm very eager to get my hands on the book and get into more of the details that we didn't even go over in the interview. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the details that we didn't go over, you know, one of the, our favorite Disney films is the reluctant dragon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that provides a tour of the new Walt Disney studio and there's some animated segments in there. But in this in, in his book, Jake writes about how this film was released during the strike. And of course, you know, the film shows happy studio employees, you know, as they explain, <laughs> uh, you know, how animated films are made. Well, some of those happy studio employees were on the picket line when this film was released and this just helped to fan the flames of frustration and anger amongst the striking employees and they actually did go and pick at the film and things like that and there there was a bit of a scene but uh so yeah there's a lot more to this story than what we could cover in our conversations with him yeah uh, that's actually I I never really thought about that with the timing that it overlapped, but yeah, the it, the reluctant dragon. It honestly, it, before I had the chance to visit the Walt Disney Studio, that was obviously the the movie that got me excited for why I should want to be like thrilled to visit the studio because it does. It not only does it show the history of the studio and right as as that studio was born and really coming into its own self, but like, yeah, the history's there, but it makes it seem like this utopia for animation. So then for it to release in the middle of an event like that, I mean, it's 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 a train wreck. It's been literally like releasing a a documentary short on how beautiful Germany was right in the middle of world war two. And mm-hmm. like, Oh, that's, that's, that's not good. I can understand why they would also, they would pick at the film because it's way, way too positive in terms yeah. of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so a lot of, a lot of good uh, stories like that in the book. So, but now it's time for this week in Disney history. Well, I think it's my turn to go first this time around. You are correct. <laughs> ah, and I'm going to choose something that actually Jake talked about last week. That is September 4th, 1918. And Walt Disney was a substitute mail carrier working for the United States Postal Service. And he's walking through the West Adams Street lobby of the Federal Building in Chicago when he hears this deafening blast that shakes the ground. Well, this was during what was now known as the anarchist movement when we were seeing a lot of bombs being placed, not just the United States, but around the world. There were uh, there were political assassinations, including Archduke Ferdinand, the, you know, that had launched World War One. Um, well, somebody had planted a bomb here. More than 75 people are injured and four are killed, including a co-worker of Walt's who is named William Wheeler. And the force of the blast also kills a horse on the street. It damages a streetcar and shatters windows nearby buildings. So this was pretty, uh, you know, a pretty significant blast. And 
it was normally this is where Walt this was near the entrance that Walt usually used, but he had been delayed by a few minutes. And Jake had talked about this that um, because Walt had been delayed uh, to some work related issue, he missed getting getting hit by this bomb. And he talked about it later on, and he said, now I was in the post office, I just got through sorting my mail or finishing my route, and I was walking out, going out a certain entrance when it was bombed, and I was right in the lobby when, boom, this thing went off. Here comes the dust shooting out and everything. That was the way I went out every night. I missed that darn thing by about three minutes. So history could have really been changed if Walt had been uh, three minutes earlier. I, I know it's, <laughs> and and I think about it in those terms of like uh, it, of like a Marvel movie, even in that way, and like the Marvel What If series, where everything takes place in like alternate Marvel dimensions and, and such, and any anything that's like different dimensions, uh, if that exists out there. There is a timeline in which Walt was probably there and the world is entirely different. But that's only if mm-hmm. you believe in that kind of thing. Um, I, I'm not sure if I do. It's, it's a fascinating thing to think about, but I, our world would be so incredibly different. And it, it's also one of those discouraging things too that, you know, it's people think a lot of issues like bombings and, and a lot of, uh, a lot of just, terrible acts like that or or something that's you know something that happens in this generation but i mean it just it's all it's all over history it's just what the different type of of weapons that are used and now obviously guns are such an issue but bombs bombs are a thing too and it's it's one of those problems you wish wouldn't have happened back then wish it wouldn't happen now yeah yeah absolutely but big big day the world it was it was yeah september right now (laughs) yeah september 4th 1918 or we'd be talking about universal studios or something who knows (laughs) charles the mel (laughs) yeah (laughs) so so fascinating Uh, well (laughs) mine comes from september 6th of 2009 and on that day uh, the documentary film Waking Sleeping Beauty was uh, had its debut at the Telluride Film Festival in Colorado. And I will always uh, take any moment that I have to talk about this movie. I actually had a chance to show it to Rhino on the recent Alaska cruise that we were on because he had he had never seen it before. And I... I it's I know he's fascinated by documentaries and we were watching the Disney Plus channel on the Disney Cruise which just sometimes shows like um it, it just sometimes shows random Disney Plus shows it'll show one episode at a time and then it'll show a bunch of ads and it, it's very strange how it's set up rather than just adding Disney Plus to it but uh there there was one documentary that we were watching where I saw him like get into it and he was really paying attention and so like you know what, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll, I'll put it on. And of course, he was complaining as I scrolled down to it. Like <laughs> waking Sleeping Beauty, I don't want to watch a movie about Sleeping Beauty. Like, <laughs> trust me, it's, it's a not metaphor. About that. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and you know, luckily they explain that quote within the first ten minutes of the movie, and it all of a sudden made sense. But I swear, he was hooked within the first thirty seconds. Once he mm-hmm. really saw what it was about and and saw the shape that it was going and knew the time period and you know they teased just a little bit of the the stress of what's happening it, it was he was instantly hooked so if you haven't seen Waking Sleeping Beauty yet of course it is on Disney Plus so you can watch it uh, we we talked to the director a long time ago Don Hahn on connecting mm-hmm. with Walt and you know who will be a Disney legend this year which is very very exciting but it, it is just so so captivating and actually I know the exact part where Rhino got hooked it was when they started showing the old clips of like Tim Burton sitting there and cuz it was all these people he clearly never knew were like Disney animators it's like is that Tim Burton it's like oh you're in for a treat we're going to learn a lot here so absolutely watch it if you haven't yet it is just it is one of the best disney documentaries you could possibly watch 
that has nothing oh, yeah. to do with Walt, but just a, a very important time in Disney history. Oh, yeah. Well, that, when they talk about the second golden age of Disney, you sort of see when it was in its doldrums in that 70s period. And then when and then Little Mermaid hits <laughs> yeah, and all that, you know, what le- and everything that led up to it. I I still like the fox and the hound, and mm-hmm. I, I I have an appreciation for the great mouse detective. There, there's some good ones in there. Yeah, yeah, there are definitely, but they weren't as wildly popular as no. what came after them. No, no. So. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> no, no, but good choice. Yeah, I, I it's funny. I was looking for something to watch last weekend, and I almost put that on to rewatch it. So, um, yeah, I really want to watch Howard again because it's, Mm -hmm. I haven't watched it since it originally came out. And so when I put that on the cruise, I was like, Oh, I need to go back and and watch Howard. It's about time. Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent one too, about Howard Ashman. Well, speaking of, of the films and classic films and all that, have you seen the, the new trailer for the live action Pinocchio that's going to debut on Disney plus day on September 8th? I did, and I I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. I will just say up front, I thought it was a better trailer. Obviously, the first one was a teaser, and this one was uh, a full-length trailer with way more in there. And uh, we can go blue in the face all day talking about how necessary it is to make it, but I I saw enough in it that I'm definitely – my interest is peaked, for sure. I don't know if it'll be good. But I'm more excited about watching it now than I was originally. Yeah, I, it, I, I'm, it, it's. I agree with you. Did this need to be made? Because as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, okay, this is a scene by scene. They're showing us. I mean, everything they showed us is in the film, pretty much in the original animated film. So then I always think, why are you remaking it? So, um, you know, you know, and I always go back to Cinderella. I think that's a brilliant remake, but they added to the story. Mm-hmm. And sure. so, and are they adding to the story here? But I still, the blue fairy still creeps me out. I still think she looks very menacing rather than warm and compassionate. And because and, it keeps showing the same basic scene again. Just from, you know, more of a side angle. And I, I don't like her. I just don't. I, I think uh, it will change once you see her in it. I mean, obviously, I don't. I, I haven't seen it. So I can't say that it's she's going to do the character justice. But Cynthia Revo is one of the one of the best. Uh, I don't even want to call her up and coming actresses because, you know, she's all she's already been nominated for an Academy award. So she's already had her, she has her foot in the ground. Um, but she is, she is going to make amazing movies over her career. And uh, I don't, I don't think they would have chose her if she wasn't right for, I don't think she would have accepted it if she felt like she wasn't right for it. So I think it might just be a, a play more where the, the marketing isn't great because, I mean, to be fair, it also makes Tom Hanks look very ridiculous. <laughs> the whole yeah, well, the accent and just yeah. trying to go like for such a like this is we're trying to really make him look exactly like Geppetto. He didn't need to look exactly like Geppetto. <laughs> they, well, see, that's what they're making it. everybody look exactly like the film, except the Blue Fairy. And I thought there's nothing soft to her. Everything is jagged and dark i don't know i just don't like i I have no problem with the actress i don't like the image of her i don't like the figure of how they've sculpted or created the blue fairy there's nothing soft about her i I just don't like it i I think and that could be that could ruin the film for me i I think (laughs) once her personality gets to shine out that's one of those things that you know will well, kind of it, her personality itself will soften the character. I, I understand what you're you're talking about with it, though. I, I don't I don't necessarily agree with it, but I also I I was more make or break on how terrible is Pinocchio going to look in the movie 
that's that's the the hard part for me and i'm i'm not i'm not necessarily against it it's we'll see how much how well it feels like it blends into the world when i'm watching the trailer or watching the movie on my actual tv rather than on my cell phone but mm-hmm. uh it i think i don't know i think i think it's going to be it's going to definitely be passable i i have i have hopes of that i feel like that's going to be the case but who knows? It could be just atrociously awful, <laughs> and we'll just try to forget about it. Yeah, I hope not. Yeah, I don't like the CG um, that they've done on Chimney Cricket that they've showed us so far. He looks very two-dimensional. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> there's something that feels off about it, and unfortunately, I do feel like that's finished effects at this point. They wouldn't have put out it, the movie comes out in days, so mm-hmm. it's not like they were gonna. You know, be like, oh, no, we're still finishing the effects on Jiminy Cricket. So that's why he looks a little weird. That's it's that's what he's going to look like in it. So it, that might get a little bit annoying, but I don't I, I need to see more. It's, it's where two minutes is just not enough time to yeah, really get a feel yeah. for it. Well, we shall see. Uh, hopefully it's better than the remake of Lady and the Tramp. Which I still <laughs> haven't watched. I just can't. Oh, oh, well. Yeah. One day. Well, you know, you'll have to watch it if you're going to sit through this pinocchio you're going to have to watch it so. it's just when the dogs start barking at the dogs on the screen it's just going to be a headache it's, it, it's mm-hmm. not worth it i will i will watch it in 15 years if they still have it on disney plus down the line <laughs> I, well, aren't they going to bark at figaro there's a chance but we don't know how much figaro is going to be on the screen the whale's going to be an issue, though. I will say that for sure. And Honest John will be a problem. There's going to be a lot of problems, but it's Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. I, I love Pinocchio more than <laughs> than Lady and the Tramp. Lady and the Tramp for yeah. me is like a that's like a sick day movie. It's it it warms you up, but I don't need to watch it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, well, we'll see what happens on Disney Plus Day. All right. Well, Craig. Until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the shows I'm on, on the Disunplugged Podcast Network. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And you can email me, Craig, at DisneyInfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. And Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. You can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 